0: All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. Uh, Again, we are formerly Theology Doesn't Suck, but we are now Rethinking Faith. So thank you for joining us again. And with you today is myself, Josh Patterson, and my co-host, Marty Frederick. What's going on, Marty?
1: What's up, Josh? Did you watch the Super Bowl last night?
0: The Super Bowl, I did. It was uh, pretty cool. (laughs) It was pretty cool. I was happy Kansas City won. I like Patrick Mahomes.
1: Yeah, I didn't have a problem with that. I did want to see Robbie Gold, uh former Chicago Bear, win a Super Bowl. He was on the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, but you know what? That's okay. It's, it was a game that no one that I cared. Either team, either way, would win or lose. Didn't really matter all that much, so I went to bed not upset unlike the time when the bears were in the super bowl about you know f- you know 12 or 13 years ago and i actually like went to bed like really upset <laughs> they lost yeah, so it's like it doesn't matter you know it, it's, it's, it's it's no big deal but yeah well the caps lost
0: yesterday unfortunately which honestly that was more important to me than the super bowl <laughs> and the but bulls
1: lost too the bulls one. got beat really bad so Dude,
0: it's, so it's just a bummer oh and on friday yeah. marty I had my uh, first practice with my new team, um, Mm -hmm. and our team name is The Chiefs. And so uh, our first practice with the new ice hockey team, and we scrimmaged this other team called the Blind Squirrels. And uh, this guy that's easily three (laughs) times bigger than me just flattened me, like completely destroyed me, put me on my butt. I held onto my stick, though. I didn't drop it. So, you know, that means I must be strong or something. But this guy decked me. I don't know. So... I just wanted I to throw that to out there. told you be careful out there, man. It's all good. I, just, I needed to throw that out there, you know. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think self-deprecation is a, a good thing, right? Actually, probably not. <laughs> anyway, we should move on. We have a guest with us today uh, that we're both excited about. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a guest that I think uh, probably most of our listeners um, have heard of before. I know a lot of you yeah. guys were excited uh, when you found out that we we're going to be interviewing this person, and so with us today uh, is Pastor and author Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Jonathan, how are you doing this morning?
2: Good morning. Good to be with you all. I'm I'm doing all right. Good. It's it's uh nice like to... y'all. I didn't have a dog in the fight at the Super Bowl, oh. <laughs> so I went to bed without knowing who had won.
0: Ah, right on. Do so. Do you uh, do you like football at all, or do you prefer a different sport?
2: Well, I grew up playing basketball.
0: Oh, right uh, on. There we go.
2: Yeah, it's North Carolina, you know. There we go. And I so, grew up in the age of Michael Jordan, so he go. was from here, and that was all the rage when I was growing up.
0: Nice. Well, we so, so with, with, with yeah. the whole sports thing, uh, we, we do have a question that we ask all of our guests when they come on, and it's a really important question. It's, it's near and dear to Marty and I's heart. Um, it matters a lot to us. And uh, depending on how Marty's feeling this morning, uh, your answer will decide if we continue this interview or not. All right, fair enough. (laughs) Hopefully Marty's in a good mood. Uh, Marty,
1: do you want to throw out our question? Yeah, who is your favorite ice hockey team?
2: Oh, well, you know, uh, I'm in North Carolina, and um, I I was not really aware that we had an ice hockey team until, uh, the Carolina Hurricanes won the Stanley Cup. So, uh, I'll have to admit that I don't follow ice hockey very closely.
0: No worries. The, but at least you knew the team local to you. That's, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people that don't even know that. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, we were, we were super bummed. Uh, one time, Jonathan, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a guy named Bruxy Cavey, um, He's a pastor yep. in, in Canada. We had Bruxy on, and we were so excited. We were like, oh, Bruxy's going to have a good hockey team. He's Canadian. And then Bruxy was like, sorry, boys, I don't watch hockey. <laughs> <laughs> well. So he, he admitted to – he said he's a bad Canadian, but we still love Bruxy. Um, right. any, anyway, we I know you know this, but we didn't bring you here today to talk about ice hockey. Um, but before well, that's we,
2: good because we've, we've said about all I know. Yeah. So there we
1: go. <laughs>
0: Perfect. Yeah, we we actually came here to talk about um, a book that recently came out. Uh, But before we jump into your book, can you just kind of give us a little bit of background information on who you are, you know, what you do, maybe your your faith journey, things like that? Sure.
2: I grew up here in North Carolina and uh, was raised Baptist in North Carolina. When I was uh, growing up, uh, the Baptists that I was raised among were pretty... uh, Carefully targeted for political engagement. That's actually a subject of the book we're talking about today. Um, but that made me get interested in politics, and uh, I wanted to become President of the United States for Jesus. That was kind of my goal in life. And so I went to Washington, D.C., and uh, paged for a senator when I was in high school. And uh, drawing close to politics as it actually works and not just as it's pitched to people back home. Uh, I realized that there was something of a tension between the so-called family values and uh, you know, pro-life agenda that we had been sold and what was actually happening in Washington. So that led me uh, sort of on a different path, and uh, I went back and reconsidered my faith and ended up uh, getting involved in faith-rooted movements that are trying to, um, uh, bring the kingdom, uh, or participate in the kingdom that God makes possible in the places where we are. So I've been part of these new monastic communities, communities of people who you know, live intentionally in the way of Jesus in communities, um, have been here uh, at one in Durham, North Carolina, really my whole adult life um, these last 17 years. And um, uh, spend a lot of time, uh, teaching in the church, uh, particularly around what it means for us to follow Jesus and uh, what the uh, implications of that kind of uh, mission in the world uh, means for all of our life. And um, I, uh, I'm i a writer kind of by disposition, so uh, I've uh, ended up writing about, uh, I think, 13 books now. Um, so I end up yeah, doing a good bit of writing and talking about what I write.
0: Awesome, great. So are you currently or or maybe it's uh, me mistaking, but are you currently serving um, in any church, or have you have I am you served?
2: Certainly a, okay. yes I'm, I'm a preacher. Okay. Uh, I was called to preach by the Baptist Church, where uh, I was raised when I was sixteen and have been preaching ever since. Uh, I'm currently at the church in our neighborhood here called the St. John's Missionary Baptist Church. Our pastor is the Reverend Robert L. Daniels, and he's been at the church for 35 years, but um, but I'm an associate uh, under him and preach there, and uh, uh, I'm sort of a jack Baptist preacher. I wander around preaching uh, in churches all over. Um, I've been this month with the uh, Episcopalians, the Quakers, the Baptists, um, you know, wherever they'll have me.
0: <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, all over the map. I like that. That's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for that that background information. Um, and so you mentioned that you're a writer. And a book that you recently put out, uh, your latest book, is called Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith uh, for the Common Good. Um, and this was a page-turner for me. I read this book in about two sittings. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Couldn't put it down. Um, but, but can you well, basically-
2: what would you take away from it?
0: Uh, many, many things. <laughs> and I, yeah, I hope to to talk about some of those, uh, takeaways today, especially, um, I mean, just, uh, you helped give, uh, like words or voice, uh, to some things, um, that intuitively I kind of felt or knew, um, but mm. maybe didn't know how to, uh, to talk about in a way that was helpful, um, or yeah. that, that didn't come off as just, um, straight up you know attacking uh Mm. i think i tend to have a have this problem where um i'll say something not not with the intent of being attacking or something like that and uh but it'll come off that way like come off too strong dogs go away (laughs) sorry my dogs just broke in Right, Go they want dogs. to be in the conversation too. They do. They're very excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so can you just kind of give us some insight into, you know, why uh, you decided to write this book, Revolution of Values?
2: Yeah, well, you know, like I was saying earlier, uh, my own faith journey has been one of recognizing that uh, some things that I thought I knew and understood um, were not uh, entirely right, and so. You know, your title of Rethinking Faith has been very much my own experience, and mm-hmm. particularly since the 2016 election, I've I've realized that my own uh, experience with regard to faith and politics resonates with a lot of people who grew up in uh, the white evangelical institutions um, uh, of the church in America, and in, you know, uh, and in American society, frankly, that, that has been shaped by those institutions rather disproportionately. Proportionately, so you know it's not just people that that grew up in the evangelical church who are asking this question of you know how can a president who bragged about sexual assault who uh, you know frequently is uh, caught lying uh, who by his own account says that he doesn't need to repent of anything uh, how could a a movement that has called itself pro-family and pro-morality uh, get behind someone like this I think that's a a question a lot of people are asking and. Uh, both my own experience and what I had to learn, you know, as someone who came out of that, uh, about the history of how I and my people were led astray, I-, I thought it was important to have a book like that this year. So that's kind of why I wrote the book.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, that's super helpful. And I think you really are, you're touching on um something that I think is a question that uh, so many people are asking, and not even just white evangelicals. <laughs> I think, that's um, right. Yeah, and I think well, also I think what's what's helpful about it too is that specifically, it is bringing up these questions to white evangelicals because not all white evangelicals um, are noticing these kind of questions or these kind of issues. So I think you you really put your finger on something important. Um, mm. Yeah, in this book, and one thing uh, you so you wrote about this in a different book, but I think it's really helpful uh, for our conversation. Um, today, because it kind of provides like a, a base that we can then, you know, uh, move on from. But you wrote another book called uh, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this idea of slaveholder religion uh, really is connected to this conversation deeply. So can you just uh, kind of like lay out for us what you mean by slaveholder religion and, and why that's an important thing to to take note of?
2: Yeah, Well, anytime you ask yourself, how in the world could Christians, you know, justify this or that, um, it's important to remember that Christians justified owning other human beings for 250 years in this country's history. And in many ways, what I tried to do in reconstructing the gospel was um, go back and look at the way American Christianity, as we know it today, was really indelibly shaped by in particular, the debates of the 19th century between the abolitionists who said uh, on moral grounds, there's no way God would approve of one human being owning another. Um, and these were, you know, often people of deep faith, uh, Quakers, evangelicals, um, certainly uh, black folks of uh, all sorts of different theological traditions um, were part of a movement that called itself, you know, abolitionism that was making this case and over and against the arguments of the abolitionists, the slaveholders paid preachers and theologians to uh, develop a case, a biblical case for, uh, the practice of owning other people. And, um, we don't hear those arguments much anymore because, uh, um, You know, white supremacy has evolved into other forms uh, since then. But the patterns of theological reasoning and of, you know, how we read the Bible that were developed in that era uh, often have very close parallels to what we see happening today. I'll just give you one example. When uh, the family separation policy was enacted by this current administration and Jeff Sessions was still the attorney general, uh, he actually went uh, public in defense of the policy of, you know, separating families that are here seeking asylum from other countries, uh, you know, taking the children away from the parents and putting them in custody, separated from their family members. Um, He defended that uh, with uh, reference to Romans 13, uh, the passage where uh, St. Paul says that we should be subject to the governing, the ruling authorities in in the places where we live. And um, that's a gross misreading of Romans 13. Um, i You know, I I think by by most biblical standards, particularly given that uh, the very person who wrote Romans was uh, often, uh, you know, incarcerated by the authorities of that day, (laughs) right? The persecution of Christianity. But nevertheless, um, uh, he he didn't come up with that on his own. That's very specifically a reading of Romans 13 that was developed by slaveholders in the nineteenth century to justify. Uh, the practice of slavery over and against abolitionists. So patterns like that have been passed down to us, you know, w- ways of reading scripture and and reasoning about our faith, and uh, particularly about faith in public life. Uh, so that, yeah, you know, in many ways, that book was a prequel to what uh, I've written in this revolution of values. I looked at 400 years of history and how Ah, uh, you know Christians have lived out our faith in uh, in the American story. In that book, um, this book is really about the last forty years mm-hmm. and about the specific ways that it has affected policy conversations in in America.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, like when I when I was reading uh, Reconstructing the Gospel and and um, you introduced me to this idea of slaveholder religion, uh, I went back and I like Googled looked up some of the arguments, uh, f- you know, that were pro slavery. Um, yeah. And it was it was really interesting to see uh, the kind of arguments that were used against the abolitionists. Things like saying that they don't value scripture, that they had a low mm-hmm. value of scripture, that they didn't take God's word seriously. Like all the yeah. kind of things that you hear people throw around still today for for various other um, you know situations. Was the was the same exact rhetoric or or things being used? Um, yeah. you know, against the abolitionists, like, oh, you don't take God seriously, you don't take the scriptures seriously, and that's why you want to, you know, abolish slavery. So yeah, really there's, this guy
2: named, there's this guy named Robert Louis Dabney who writes a letter during the midst of the resistance to abolition. He writes a letter to a you know another person who was defending slaveholder religion and says, you know, we have to drive the Bible argument continually and force the abolitionists against the wall, you know. <laughs> and uh, in many ways, you see how they did that with their arguments back then but you also see how that's you know very much what uh, the religious right does today they uh, they quote the bible and quote the bible and 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 call people who even who use the bible to uh, to challenge their position uh, they 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 call us anti-christian they call us anti-god you know they'll want to call you socialist because they can associate <laughs> socialism with you know atheism and um this happens—they uh, they very rarely want to talk about what the Bible actually says, though. I've actually been in a conversation about this. It, it's interesting. Liberty University—you know Liberty University?
0: Absolutely. They, yeah. they,
2: they started this Center for Faith and Liberty uh, last year. Um, the president, Jerry Falwell Jr., and uh, a, a young guy who is really uh, an activist in conservative circles that's very well funded by, you know, the— um, oil companies and other groups that that, that really want, you know, young people to um, uh, get on board with uh, sort of the radical uh, right extremism. Uh, They started this thing called the um, Falkirk Center, named after their, you know, two names, Falwell and Kirk. And uh, one of the first things they did was they challenged me to a debate on socialism. They said, we're going to debate socialism. And I said, well, you know, socialism is a 19th century idea. It's hard to ask was Jesus a socialist, given that Jesus lived in the first century. But, you know, let's 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 talk about what the Bible actually says about how Christians should engage in public life. And, um, you know, yeah. I thought since they had come out and challenged me to the debate, they were open to it. But I. Got to some friends who were willing to do it with me, and we send them a date based on the dates they had sent us, and they've basically backed out of the debate, huh. which seems to huh. be kind of the pattern um, where. And whenever you want to talk about what the Bible actually says, with these folks who claim to you, you know, to base everything on the Bible, um, they wanted to talk about socialism, but they didn't want to talk about the Bible, which struck <laughs> me as a kind of representative of the way this this argumentation works.
1: Sure. Josh is a really big fan of Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, <laughs> I say that facetious. extremely tongue in cheek. Well I'll
2: tell you it's a it's an institution with a, with a story that's directly tied to this story that I'm trying to tell in the book because yeah, absolutely. most people most people think when they think about the religious right they think that the religious right started in response to Roe v. Wade because it's always talked about being pro life. But one of the stories I tell in, in Revolution of Values is that actually um, this movement didn't get organized right after Roe v. Wade. It was uh, six or seven years later when uh, new right organizers were trying to build a political movement against Jimmy Carter that they reached out to Jerry Falwell. And they took this is Falwell Jr.'s dad, Jerry Falwell. Uh, he was a pastor of a big church there in Lynchburg, and they and he had a radio show that had a national audience. So they reached out to him, and they said, look, you know, your audience is is white Southern Christians, and we know that white Southern Christians are angry that their local schools have been desegregated, and that when they tried to start private segregation academies in their churches, like they did there at Liberty, um, Liberty was at first a segregation academy for uh, grade school kids. Uh, it's grown into a university. Uh, but but they knew that those people were angry that the IRS was cracking down on them for trying to use their nonprofit status to uh, evade desegregation. Hmm. So what they actually did was they mobilized white people around their anger against the Brown decision. Uh, and they said, we'll call it a pro-life, pro-family movement. Um, so it didn't have anything to do with protecting unborn babies. It had everything to do with using the anger that people had against uh, the you know legislative efforts that had been made versus white supremacy uh, that were that were changing the patterns and practices of their life. And uh, they associated those patterns and practices with what they called traditional values and said, You know, these liberals are attacking your values.' But they didn't want to appear to be racist anymore in the late 70s, so they never tell that part of the story. They just say they're pro-life.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. And I think you did, like, throughout the book, you did a really good job kind of um, tracing this, you know, you you pulled that thread through the entire book, this rise of the religious right um, and kind of where they are today and, and how they affect things. Um, and also I think you, you tied in as well this this idea of Christian nationalism and how the, the religious right kind of... Um, brought forth Christian nationalism, which is, uh, I think, one of the largest uh, problems, I would call it a problem, uh, facing the church today, is this idea of Christian nationalism. Um, can yeah. you talk a little bit about Christian nationalism, what that is, and like maybe where it came from?
2: Yeah, well, when people wanted to um, associate traditional values with the cultural values that white people had shared when white people had power, uh, and when segregation was the law. Uh, They did that by creating a myth, uh, um, a whole sort of uh, mythology about where the United States came from. And the idea was that this was was and has always been a Christian nation, that the uniqueness of the American experiment was in their imagination that it was devoted to these Judeo-Christian values, and that um, uh, what the progressive movements of the mid-20th century had done was, uh, was not to uh, expand equal protection under the law, it was not to move us toward being a more perfect union, uh, it was not, you know, a sort of fulfillment of what the Constitution itself was written to uh, uh, at least promise, if not actually enact. act. Uh, it was rather an attack on the notion of a uh, Christian society. And so um, the, the, this narrative has been used to create fear, particularly among white Christians, um, you know, who were who were already afraid because, you know, uh, politically. Uh, they were losing the prospect of white power. Um, racism, of course, had been used throughout this country's history to pit uh, white people against black and brown people, even though um, most of the racist policies didn't do very much to benefit white people. Uh, nevertheless, the the ideology was um, developed to say, you know, you may not be much, but at least you're better than those people. Mm-hmm. This is the way racism has always worked. and um, And so... Uh, Poor white people in particular were sort of hoodwinked into believing that um, uh, this system that has perpetuated incredible wealth inequality was somehow to their advantage if the people in charge of the system looked like them in terms of skin tone. And um, by associating that, not with racism, but with religious values— the religious right tried to say, this is what America is about, and any attempt to change that is anti-American and thus anti-God. And if it's anti-God, then um, you have to take a sort of religious stand against it. And so that's the narrative that has been sold by this uh, myth of a Christian nation, and the, uh, the the nationalism that's associated with it is very closely tied in terms of the power structures to uh, religious nationalism all around the world, it's worth saying it doesn't have to be Christian mm-hmm. to be religious nationalism. There's Hindu nationalism in India right now. There's there's a uh, Jewish nationalism in Israel right now, and these na- these various forms of nationalism are politically allied around uh, backing the extreme elites who have gained increasing power within the global political and economic system um, as. Wealth inequality has grown.
0: Yeah, and I think um, one thing that you showed too is is with this idea, this um, the rise of the, the rise of the religious right, the the Christian nationalism, the myth of a Christian nation, to use some of Greg Boyd's language, um, you kind of shown how this was a a long process uh, that was heavily funded, uh, has been years in the making, that kind of brought about. Um, the current presidential administration that kind of came to culmination in President Trump, like this is the person that they had been looking for um, and kind of working hard towards uh, for a long time. Is that is that right? Did I understand that correctly?
2: I think that is right, um, but I, I don't want to um, suggest that this is just about Donald Trump. Sure, because absolutely. Um, they were happy, you know, uh, fifteen years ago with George W. Bush, who in terms of policy, was basically on the same page, um, but he was not as extreme a character. Um, and I think that actually has i think the the reason why this movement needs Donald Trump right now has to do with the demographic changes happening in the country and with actually a, a, a loss in power. Mm. So they were able to, uh, maintain a white voter block with this narrative in the late 90s and early 2000s without the extreme language that someone like Donald Trump has brought. But I think the demonstration of the Obama coalition, you know, this this movement, a grassroots movement that brought black, white, and brown people together, particularly in the South and flipped some states that had been part of the Southern strategy for 40 years. um, I think it demonstrated to Republicans that the demographic changes uh, we're making it difficult to maintain this balance of power with uh, their sort of formula that they had put together. And um, that meant that they started in 2010 with serious voter suppression efforts, um, you know, legislative efforts to make less people vote, um, and particularly less black and brown people and less poor people. So there were voter ID measures. There were, you know, attempts to curtail early voting. There were uh, voter purges, you know, where they would take voter rolls and, you know, take as many people off the rolls as they could. So if those same people showed up without checking their registration the next time around, they wouldn't be able to vote. Um, All of those efforts at voter suppression were a recognition that uh, this movement was losing power. And I think the other side of that, I mean, you can try to suppress the people who would vote against you. But the other side is how do you how do you energize? uh, the base that you think you have. And, mm-hmm. uh, the way, uh, this movement has decided to do that with Donald Trump is by, uh, more explicitly extreme appeals to racism, xenophobia, you know, all the, all the, the sort of, uh, wedge issues and divisions that, uh, they had cultivated. Uh, they used to use what they would call, you know, racial dog whistles. And, uh, here's somebody who, you know, is, uh, in a, in a kind of, uh, Schmarmy sort of pt barnum way uh, able to both be explicit in an you know in, in a more directly racist misogynistic appeal you know to people for whom that's good but also to kind of laugh it off and keep it funny to the point where he can you know he can always uh, uh at least uh, convince some people that it's all just a joke and i think that kind of balance is uh what they're banking on right now uh, keeping a enough of a base energized that they can still electorally uh, beat out a coalition of people uh, who who would want something else.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Um, I think real quick before we move forward, because I kind of I want to see uh, where some of these ideas play into um, some various issues uh, that we are talking about today uh, that you brought up in your book. But before we do that, I thought it would be fair just to mentioned something that you said a couple times throughout your book, just, you know, uh, for clarity's sake with listeners, um, talking about the rise of the religious right or, like, um, speaking against some Republican policies is not an automatic endorsement of the Democratic Party. And so this, um, I think you made it very uh, clear in your book that this isn't just like, all right, now everyone has to go be a Democrat kind of thing, but rather, and we'll get to this, uh, we'll talk about it more towards the end, but this idea of uh, the common good and seeking mm. out the common good rather than a specific political affiliation, um, taking every you know election seriously and and monitoring who people are uh, regardless mm. of their their party per se, but more so um, their values. <laughs> and, uh, That's right. And that, yeah. So I just thought right. that'd be a helpful thing for for people to hear before we uh, you know kept going.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's a strictly partisan critique um, to to point out the way that this history has developed and the way that people have been targeted and used is certainly to criticize the strategy that the republican party has used in relationship to um particularly white evangelical communities Uh, but uh that's not to say you know that um that the answer to that is strictly partisan i actually don't believe in what some people call a religious left you know i don't think that it's enough to just sort of find religious arguments for the current uh, you know, version of the Democratic Party, because um, uh, while we certainly need, you know, an an alternative party within a partisan system to challenge the power, you know, people who are abusing power, uh, the reality is always that, you know, God's kingdom and God's uh, vision for the world is beyond the sort of available options that we have. So I think a prophetic biblical critique of politics as it is has to be able to uh, call people, you know, beyond the um, the given re- uh, options uh, to uh, something better. But then while doing that to say, you know, we live in a, in a world where there are always particular options. You know, when you go to the voting booth, when you decide to register for what you have to choose. And uh, we make those choices based on a discernment about what God's values really are. And I think, um, I think the religious right has seriously led people astray in terms of what those values are. So this book is really about um how do we learn God's politics? You know, how do we root ourselves in the values that really are at the heart of Scripture?
0: Yeah, and you do um, a really good job of jumping into some of those things. So I think uh, let's go ahead and do that. Let's, uh, so I pulled out four um, different things, uh, four different issues from your book that we can talk about. I can uh, throw them all out, and then you can pick one that you're more passionate about, or we could just uh, go through them and just kind of see um, where this goes. What, what would you like to do? I'm going to leave it up to you, <laughs> even though I know we're the ones well, doing the interview. What struck
2: you, and um, a, a lot of a lot of what I was trying to do in this book is is connected to work that I'm doing with the Poor People's Campaign mm-hmm. around the country right now. And um, uh, in terms of the values that we live out in public, one of the things that the that that campaign is, is trying to do is help people see how these issues are interlocked. You know how right. they connect. To- so it's really not a single issue thing, but it's about how multiple issues connect to really impact people's lives. So we can start anywhere.
0: All right. Well, let's um let's start with uh, the idea of immigration then. Um, you and forgive me, I forget her name. Um, but you told a really powerful story um of of a woman that you know who uh, lives here in the states. Her family was uh, deported, and you had the opportunity um to go with her um. Oh my goodness! I forget what it was called. Uh, something hugs with something. Um, yeah, hug
2: not walls is a program that a community down on the border in El Paso, Texas started, and um, yeah, for families that have been separated, just a, a chance to have a short reunion in the middle of the Rio Grande. Um, and it was on one of those uh, uh, meetings, you know, those journeys to meet for families to reunite, uh, that uh, that I met. Maria, whose story I tell, and um, where I felt like I just had a, a kind of powerful rebaptism sort of experience when we were in the river, and um, it was a, a realization that you know the way my faith has been misused uh, has hurt real people. You know, it's it has separated her family. Her husband and her sons, her grown, you know, adult sons, were on the other side of the river, and um, the only way she had to, to touch them was to go out and stand in the middle of the river for a few minutes while the border patrol uh, watched. Um, so it's, you know, it's impacting real people, but also I think what I saw in her and her faith, and she's a member of a Catholic church down there, and uh, part of a movement that is working to both. You know, tell the truth about what's happening, but also change this reality for people. Um, it was a real recognition that uh, our faith can can lead us to um, uh, to work together for the common good. And uh, she and the group she's part of, called the Border Network for Human Rights, is certainly doing that. And I think uh, a movement that connects people like that in communities across the country is what we need to uh, transform our conversation about um, what values matter I mean I don't know how you can say you're for family values and um, you know believe that someone like Maria needs to be separated from her family um, just a, it's, it's sort of a, those kinds of relationships and real on-the-ground experiences of how policy impacts people that uh, I think is has has the power to transform our conversations
0: yeah, absolutely. And I feel like this is this is one of those issues where um, scripture is is employed like very heavily, at least in my experience. People uh, try to make really strong arguments um, about why it's good to have people in cages and, you know, why, you know, um, like all those kind of things. And so yeah. the, one of the, the strangest arguments I heard um, was about Jesus uh, and they said, yeah, sure, Jesus was an immigrant, but he, like, he was a legal immigrant. He wasn't illegal. Yeah. So, like, you guys just have to bow down to the law. Um, yeah. So, like, that, I think that's a, a really good example of how, how Scripture has been uh, twisted, um, you know, and, and, you know, the morality of it has been raised where if, if you question this, then you're questioning authority or questioning morality or you're questioning Scripture and God. And so, you yeah, know, that's kind of how it's being used.
2: Yeah, it's a convenient use of scripture when you want to defend any particular law, but it's a it's a way of reading scripture that falls apart if you actually read the Bible that sure. way. I
0: mean,
2: <laughs> you end up, you know, you end up with with God's people following Moses out to the out to the Red Sea, and then you know when he gets to the Red Sea and Pharaoh shows up and you know as the chief law enforcement officer of Egypt and says, "Listen, folks, time to go back." I mean, the only, only way you can apply it there is to say, and so Moses turned around and marched the people back into captivity.
1: Now, that just doesn't,
2: <laughs> that story doesn't work. Or, or, you know, Jesus goes to the cross and he's sentenced to death, you know, by the legal authorities in the day. And so you have to say that, um, I guess you have to say it was a good thing that Jesus was crucified, that that was like, you know, uh, complying with the law. It's, 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 a, it's a quite uh, odd way of, of, of reading the Bible. Um mm-hmm. uh, you know again it's um i think it's a appropriation of you know a few verses to try to defend a particular policy but it doesn't work when you take it back to read the whole bible that way the bible is actually full of um uh, people who practiced civil disobedience mm-hmm. uh, or what we might better call divine obedience you yeah. Yeah. know like like, <laughs> like Daniel and his friends in uh, Babylon who said you know, even though the law says we've got to bow down to this statue, uh, we'll go into the fiery furnace. We'll trust that our God can make a way uh, if we're faithful. And um, I I think that's the sort of thing that we're called to in a moment when the law of the land is obviously not serving life and not serving real families. Mm I mean, I'm, I'm as... Much for changing the immigration law as anyone. Um, It's certainly broken. It certainly needs to be fixed. But the reality is, you know, there are 11 million people in this country who, you know, their kids are in our schools. They're almost anything you do, you're dependent on their labor. Uh, If you eat out, you know, they're often working in the kitchen. If you uh, build a house, they're roofing and frame in your house. Um, uh, the, the, these people are uh, deeply interconnected with our lives and our economy uh, and yet they have been offered no legal status um, which means by the way I think it's important to emphasize for people it means that these folks contribute to the economy without any promise of the sort of basic um uh protections in the economy that we you, you know we t- they pay into social security but they're never going to get anything out of social security they know that right so so these are the people who are floating your social security um you know as uh, as the national debt skyrockets uh they're floating the promise to me and people like me that we'll have some basic income you know when we're not working anymore and um and they're not benefiting from it. And then you say that these people are somehow bringing us down. I mean, you know, the, the, the arguments for immigration reform uh, are all, you know, fundamentally about how the people who have immigrated here are being mistreated. It's a justice issue for them. But they're being attacked by people who say that they're somehow bringing the country down. And that that kind of demonization has led to these extreme enforcement practices, you know, where not only families at the border are being separated, but families in our communities are being ripped apart by ICE. Well, you know, when these raids happen or when they try to you know, execute a deportation order from 30 years ago uh, where, you know, somebody d- just didn't get their legal paperwork right, but ICE always knew they were here and they you know, always knew that they were working. And this was not an issue under Republicans or Democrats before, but when this Trump administration came in, they said they were going to have zero tolerance for these sort of policies. I mean, that's sort of, that's sort of a... a, a almost worship of the law as it exists you know where we'll mm-hmm. sacrifice anything for the sake of this law that you know by any account is a messed up system is uh, is is i think a a sort of foolishness that uh we shouldn't we shouldn't tie it to scripture uh because frankly when you do that you 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 might convince some people that they should stand by this person you're trying to defend But you're making a mockery of Christianity, and I think most people recognize that. So it's Mm -hmm. not an accident that, you know, this movement that's been willing to use Scripture to justify a political agenda is is also uh, a movement that, if you track it, has been driving people away from the church. So, you know, for every decade that this religious right has been, uh, you know, investing hundreds of millions of dollars in these lies, uh, the number of people who don't want to associate with any sort of religious tradition has doubled each of those decades. <laughs> wow. that's the group that, that they call the nuns. You know, the mm-hmm. people who don't associate with any any religion, certainly not the uh, religious tradition they were raised in.
0: Yeah, and that's not for our listeners. That's nuns, n o n e s, not n u n s. Not the sisters. Not the
2: sisters flooding into the convent. Um, right. but people flooding out of the churches. Those are the nuns.
0: Right. Right. And I think uh, you made a good point earlier about how um, these kind of things are connected. And I think this law and order, um, the, um, you know, policies that treat um, uh, black and brown people um, unfairly uh, ties into another thing you talked about a lot in in your chapter law and order, which was on like the prison system and the the mass incarceration um, of of African-Americans in this country. And, again, how we continue to use this language of, of law and order, law and order, law and order, um, to maintain these these unfair systems.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one in three African Americans can expect to be incarcerated at some point in their life. That's just the statistics. Wow. Uh, it's an incredible disparity uh, in a country, you know, that claims equal justice under the law. Um, what we know now you know thanks to the work of people like Michelle Alexander who wrote the new Jim Crow and uh, and really movements that have um, that have formed to abolish mass incarceration is we we know that this um, this incredible uh, racial disparity in our carceral system um, was the uh, result of um, a, a new Jim Crow right a, a, a an effort to move away from legal segregation to uh, a carceral system that targeted black and brown communities in such a way that people could be legally disenfranchised legally segregated because of a criminal record uh, rather than because of the color of their skin and um, that continues to play itself out you know there are um, some 70 million people in this country who who have a criminal conviction on their record, which means that employers can, you know, deny them employment, Uh, uh, real estate people can deny them access to housing, Uh, they can be denied federal, you know, aid for education and other things, Um, uh, uh, all because their community got targeted during the war on drugs or uh, was was over-policed, you know, uh, all of the stats show that, for example, with drug use, um, black, white, and brown people use drugs at roughly the same rates, but black and brown people have been incarcerated for drug use at extremely disproportionate rates, and that, you know, that, that has a, a ripple effect through through those communities. Um, so the, the, the notion that we would then, you know, take a legal carceral system that is so broken and say that somehow, you know, God has ordained it, and therefore, if it's the law, you have to obey it. Um, you know, it's, it's not only a slap in the face to black and brown people, but like I was saying earlier, it's a, it's a slap in the face to every, you know, person who actually wrote the New Testament, Mm -hmm. (laughs) most of which was, most of which was written from jail (laughs) by people who were in jail for breaking the law of the land, uh, in order to preach the gospel. And, um, I think if we want to learn the gospel, we learn it well by listening to people who have heard it behind bars. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, told the story in the book of uh, Indume Olatushani, who has uh, uh, been, been on, he was uh, unjustly put on Tennessee's death row uh, and spent over two decades there until uh, he was exonerated and and was released. Uh, but Indume, you know, knows uh, the the good news of justice for all. Uh, the good news of um, uh, uh, you know what it means to uh, to be pro life. <laughs> he knows that from the perspective of having been condemned to death, and, uh, and 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 grappling with you know what what he believes is true for all people from that place. And so he works you know with the Children's Defense Fund today uh, to try to empower communities to work together to change this uh, carceral system that's so unjust but does that from a perspective of you know of having found hope and life and and a sustaining faith in the midst of um that wrongful incarceration i think it's people like that who can really teach us a better way and so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to lift up their examples in this book
0: yeah absolutely yeah. all the i i really appreciated how like every chapter you had um connected uh, the ideas to a story of like a real life person that you know and you interact with and are friends with um, I think that's really uh, really helpful and really impactful um, because when we tell story and we take concepts and ideas that are kind of abstract and out here and we show like wait a minute this actually is affecting real life people, image bearers <laughs> people who have intrinsic value um, all those kind of things it really helps frame the situation in a different light Um, where it's much harder uh, to hate people or hate a group Mm. of people once you get to know them and you see their humanity and you can recognize, um, again, that they are image bearers and and fellow human beings. And so I think that was a really, really powerful thing um, that you did throughout your book. Mm. And also, too, I I think with this conversation, something that that comes up with the the prison and immigration thing, um, often within Scripture we see Jesus uh, siding with the oppressed people groups. <laughs> and uh, when we draw lines in the sand, I think we have to be really careful because it seems to me that Jesus tends to go on the other side of that line um, yeah. when we start trying to oppress groups of people. So um, that always has, has kind of boggled my mind. Um, but then I think uh, one more, and then I want to kind of um, just uh, say, what can we do moving forward? How can, you know, what, what can we do to, to do better? Um, one that really... Uh, i've always struggled with um because i have a very strong ethic of of nonviolence. um Mm -hmm. is the militarization um of our country and and how much money we we throw into funding military and then how many people um as christians feel like it is our christian duty you know god and guns back the military you know blow everybody up who doesn't look like us all in the name of jesus (laughs) and so can you talk about a little bit how the militarization is tied into this conversation as well
2: Well, it's incredibly important. Dr. King said in 67 that you couldn't address, you know, poverty and racism in this country without addressing militarism, Um, because this mythology, of course, that, you know, claims a a sort of a righteous mandate for this country um, has been perpetuated often by you know, demonizing other countries. It was communists, you know, before, and then it became terrorists after 9-11. But those people over there are always a threat to our way of life. And so um, people can be mobilized to sort of enact their Christian nationalism by going along with these uh, wars that are waged against the black and brown other somewhere in another part of the world um, to protect us and who we are. So it's it's, it's really about identity as much as anything. Um, What we have seen over and over again is that um, those wars are often based on some pretense that uh, turns out to be a lie, you know, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, uh, There were other, you know, lies that were told in Vietnam and it's, it's happened over and over again. That deception, though, Leads to a huge cost in terms of human life, um, both you know soldiers who are called to fight, mostly from poor communities here, and also you know the people whose homes and communities are destroyed by bombardment. Um, so there's there's that, but there's also the fact that the the, the key driver of uh, militarism is the defense contract that make money off of it, right? So those are the people who are constantly pushing uh, for more and more war, for more and more uh, uh, apparatus of war uh, in the name of national defense. But, you know, to the point where we we have a nuclear arsenal that could destroy the world 50 times over. And I mean, you know, if you can destroy the world once, how many more times do you need to destroy it? I mean, it's it's just, it's nonsense, right? It it, it spirals to a sort of insanity. but it's it's all sold in the name of well, don't you you know, don't you believe we should defend the nation? Don't you believe you should defend your neighbors? That kind of thing. So, um I think questioning our um, our really um, captivity to militarism is a huge part of uh, challenging the way that wealth inequality, and the disparity between the extreme elites and most of us in this country uh, is, is is really based on an acceptance of a budget that puts you know 53 cent of every discretionary dollar in the in the uh, economy to uh, to war and war making. Right. So the Poor People's Campaign that I'm part of it, did a, did an audit and realized that we have 383 billion. That's billion with a B. 383 billion dollars. In the budget this year, that could be reappropriated for things that you know people need, like health care, like education, uh, like you know real infrastructure change to address our dependence on an oil economy that's created a climate crisis. These are these are real structural changes that need to happen. And when you bring them up, the question is always, well, where would we find the money? Well, we already have the money, right? <laughs> right. The, money's, the money's being wasted. In a war economy that's prepared for a sort of Armageddon struggle, that again, you know, would would destroy much more world than than we have. So, you know, it's it's a it's overkill. You know, even even if you believe in a sort of you know just national defense, then uh, y- you only need to defend you know the, the the nation to the extent that it could be threatened by someone else. And 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 we've um, we've been convinced by these defense contractors that. You know that 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 we um, have just had this ballooning military budget that's completely out of control. So again, that's where these things are interconnected. If you ask mm. the question, you know, who's supporting an unchecked military economy? Who's such, who's supporting uh, uh, you know uh, an extractive oil economy that can't be you know challenged or regulated by government or by the very real um, uh, issue of a climate crisis? Um, who's attacking immigrants? Who's you know pushing this law and order business that uh, demonizes black and brown folks? Um, if 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 you if you say who those people are, it's often the same politicians, and they happen to be the politicians who have who have used the language of pro life and pro family to tell people that they're somehow crusading for our values. Mm-hmm. Well, as a matter of fact, I believe they're contradicting the. The core values of scripture, and Christians have a responsibility to stand up and do something about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what? Because all of this can be really depressing. Um, but what what can we do moving forward? Because you're you're calling for a revolution of values, and and for us to reclaim uh, public faith for the common good. So what what are the kind of things that we can do? Who can we be supporting? Um, things like that. What would you suggest?
2: Two things. One is everybody knows that Christians are uncomfortable with this sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's been at that awkward church service, you know, at the awkward dinner table after the church service. You know, uh, everybody's sort of, you know, hung their head after Franklin Graham or somebody's been on television saying something outlandish. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that within the in a church world, particularly within the evangelical world, I, I I believe that it's possible to organize people who feel that discomfort uh, to uh, to to have a different sort of public engagement in 2020 and beyond. But I don't think it's going to happen unless we have these conversations, right? Mm-hmm. I think left left to ourselves, people feel uncomfortable, they swallow hard, and they move on with what they've always known. So. One thing you can do is you can have this conversation. You can have it in your church. You can have it in your Bible study. You can have it, you know, with your coworker or with your, you know, friend when you go out for coffee. Whatever the whatever the case is, I I think we need to be having this conversation. That's why I wrote the book. You know, Revolution of Values is really a tool to help people have this conversation with their Christian friends. So so there's there's that. But I I think beyond the conversation, if people are going to have something that they can believe in, uh, there needs to be a movement that's changing the conversation. And I really do believe that that's what the poor people's campaign, a national call for moral revival is doing. And so I encourage people to connect with that movement. Uh, it is a nonpartisan movement. It's not, you know, it's not about, uh, rallying people to join the democratic party, but it is about changing the conversation about what matters in public life for Republicans and Democrats. And, um uh, uh, you can go to PoorPeople'sCampaign.org. You can see the, uh, the the principles that are at the heart of this campaign. You can see the hundreds of organizations around the country, including sixteen um, religious denominations, both Christian, Jewish, and Muslim, that have joined the campaign. And um, uh, and you can uh, begin to connect with people in your area, both people of faith and people not of faith, but who share these values and want to see a movement that shifts our focus from you know endless debates of whether we need big government or small government, whether we you know whether we progressive or conservative. No, it, it's 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 really about who's committed to addressing the hundred and forty million people who are poor and low wealth in this country and who've hardly been addressed by either party for decades now. And that's what the Poor People's Campaign is calling for. So I'd encourage people to to join it. It's uh, it has uh, active coordinating committees in forty three states and so you can find one close to where you are.
0: Great well, well' we'll be sure to uh, link that in the show notes um, the poorpeoplecampaign.org uh, for our listeners and also um, we'll link your book as well that way people can find it um, and you know go out and go out and purchase it so that they can start having these kind of conversations um, and also too, uh, in the back of your book you you had like a whole big list of uh, different organizations, uh, faith-based organizations that are working yeah. uh, for the common good. Um, so those things are really helpful as well, and we can share those uh, with our listeners too. Uh- yeah, please
2: do plug in. Plug in with those groups. You know, they come out of different traditions, and you know, would co- probably connect more easily with some people than others. But but I think it is important to know that there are, there are lots of faith rooted people who are doing this work. These organizations don't have as much money because they're not supporting you know, the agenda of the oil companies that have so much money, but nevertheless, uh, they do have the truth. And I think the truth is more powerful in the end.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Well, Jonathan, this is, um, this has been awesome. Thank you for, and I mean, we barely just, you know, scratched the surface. So thank you so much uh, for, for starting this conversation, for doing the work that you're doing. I think it's super important. Uh, Marty, do you have any uh, closing thoughts or anything you want to wrap up with?
1: No, I, everything. The whole conversation really has been very interesting to me. Um, pretty much every question that you asked Josh was something that I was thinking, and so it was kind of like you know one after the other. We were just kind of right on the same page, so I didn't really have much that I needed to add. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just it's one of those things where you know I think um, I'm I'm a big student of um, just. Like it, like our our founding fathers, our colonial history. I have a, a colonial history degree, history degree, um, and uh, it's just one of those things that, as you look back on who our founding fathers were and kind of what they stood for, and then you, if you look at what our current political system looks like, um, there, there's there's nothing, there's there's absolutely no correlation between the two, um, and you can make any case about whether one of our founding fathers actually. You know was a religious person or was not a religious person the fact of the matter is that you know it, the way things look now it's nothing like what those people would have imagined it to look like using you know, josh you talked about this in one of our previous episodes where uh using the pro-life issue as a red bu- a red button hot topic um just to get extra votes essentially you know that's kind of the way things have been done in this country you know there's a reason why Um, someone like Donald Trump goes to the to the uh, March for Life campaign in a campaign season Uh, he's not going there because that's something you know maybe necessarily like oh man I really feel like I personally want to go here but he knows if he does it he's going to get specific people on his side that will vote for him or lobby for him and other people will then want to vote for him Um, and so you know it was just been an interesting conversation across the board for me
0: great Awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Jonathan. We'll be sure to to link everything uh, so people can find you, Uh, you know, social media, all those kind of things. And again, listeners, thanks for tuning in and be sure to go out and pick up a copy of Jonathan's uh, latest book, Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good, and start having these conversations uh, so we can start to to make a difference. Again, Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for being here. And as always, guys, go Caps.
1: Go Blackhawks. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.